Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Stephen Campbell. Everybody'd sit at lunch and they'd exchange. It was you know, it was an exchange of information on masturbation. Right? That's what that's how the Renaissance started. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I am loving getting back to one-on-one coaching. These sessions that you can find at kevinallison.com. I meet with folks about storytelling, presentations, toasts, memoirs, solo shows, podcasts. One of my favorite parts of this work that I do are these sessions with individuals where we workshop a story or brainstorm about a creative endeavor or even talk through life circumstances. A person might find themselves in a life situation where it feels like they're in the middle of a risk story and they want to talk to me about different possible routes to take to get to a resolution. If you're not sure if something you'd like to chat about is appropriate or substantial enough or or in the right wheelhouse or affordable, feel free to email me at kevin at risk-show.com and we can suss that out. And for everything else, you can find the right link at kevinallison.com. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Madison Cunningham behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Aggression. When it's funny and when it's not. Now, hey, don't forget, Risk is in San Francisco on February 4th. And we're in Philly on March 2nd. And all you need to know about all of our live shows is at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Lilibet Fleur, who reached out to us from London. Lilibet is a forager and plant fanatic. I love plant fanatics. 
<laughs> if you're one who lives in Brooklyn, maybe we can chat about how I can add some of the extremely hard to accidentally kill kind in my own home. But before that, we're going to hear from Stephen Campbell. Now, in November of last year at Caveat in New York, Stephen told this story, and I would be lying if I said it didn't have something or other to do with dick pills. Stories with Stephen is the name of his new podcast, and you can find him on all the socials at Stephen Campbell Comedy. So here he is now with a story we call Hard Times. Hello. So when I was a freshman in high school, I bought a fistful of penis enhancement pills from an old Guatemala man in the high school parking lot. Uh, regularly. <laughs> that was just a thing I did. The whole student body did. Everybody was buying dick pills from this old Guatemala man in the parking lot. But we weren't just like buying pills. We were buying peace. Do you know what I mean? Like I grew up in a place called Simi Valley, California. It's a nice little mixing pot of drugs and gang violence. It was like a very, it was a very violent area, right? And I was, I was a freshman in high school, and so I was like, I was very small, right? And for, for continuity and for convenience, so you guys can envision the story, I remained small, <laughs> just, just for you. But I was always, my old motivation as a freshman in high school was just to position myself in a way to not get my ass beat. I was always just trying to be a value add to all the groups. I was being very diplomatic. You know what I mean? Like, I was playing sports, so I was cool with the jocks. I smoked weed with the punkers. I would drink 40s behind the In-N-Out with the Mexican gangsters. The white power kids didn't fuck with me because I was white. <laughs> and then for continuity, I remained that way for this story too. <laughs> it was a very violent school. We had fights every day after school, right? We had so many fights after school that you would have like ballads where you'd have multiple fights, but it, be, it turned so unruly at the park, so many fights that they needed a referee. And so I was trying to be a value add to the situation, so I became that person. And so I was like mediating fights between white power and Latin gang fights, right? It would be jocks versus a punker. There'd be a gay dude beating up somebody that said a homophobic slur, but always the main ballot was the white power and Latin gang fights. And they kept inviting me back, but there were only like two rules really, right? My, my job was to make sure that it wasn't a group fight, no brawls and no weapons. Every third fight was a brawl. Every 10th, somebody got stabbed. I was not good at my job. <laughs> I was just not like, and I, but they kept bringing me back. And, and I, I gotta think it's just because I was always like peppering in a joke here and there, right? That was like kind of how I started doing stand-up, was telling jokes to like hormonal white power kids. Kids that are like quoting Hitler but not old enough to grow the stash. You know, like, like just, and so I would just be telling jokes to all these angry children. And so I, you know, I'd pepper in some levity because everybody at a race war is so serious. <laughs> you know, and so I just try to put a little smile on their face. I was, yo, I was always just like trying to joke, like, you know what I mean? like. Wayne is one of the white power kids, and I just remember like before one of the fights, like, Wayne, what's this behind your ears? Like, uh-oh, it's the knife that was in your sock. <laughs> and then I turn around, and I think that I'm gonna get a bunch of laughs from all the people, but they look horrified. I look back, Wayne is getting the shit beat out of him. 
And then I just, all I could think was like, that's probably why he wanted the knife. <laughs> but then Sal came. Sal came in on a green Datsun truck. He drove into the high school parking lot. He set up camp and he just started selling us all dick pills. You know, <laughs> and it, it, he would say, he would sell, sell us fistfuls of dick pills. He'd say, take two of these in the morning, jerk off. Take two at night, jerk off again. I was a freshman in high school. I was gonna do that shit anyway. Right, but the first red flag should have been that the unit of measurement was fistfuls. And he would sell them, and Sal would just sit out of his Dotson truck and he would sell us dick pills. And when I say that peace came over the student body, I really mean it. Because one thing that we all had as freshmen is we were all trying to have sex. The only thing we knew about sex was porn. And the only thing we knew about those people having sex is they had 10 inch throbbing dicks. Right, and so we're like, that's what we need to have sex. Not the acne, not the screechy voice, not the fact we never even talked to a woman. It was the dicks. And so we did, we all started, we all got together. And people that were warring nations were now at peace. And now they're all talking to each other and they're talking, to, they're, we're bringing people out of the dark ages of masturbation. There's people teaching you how to fuck a surgical glove with Lubriderm inside, but this person's just learning to jack off and everybody'd sit at lunch and they'd exchange. It was, you know, it was an exchange of information on masturbation. Right, that's, what, that's how the Renaissance started, right? Because everybody was at peace and there was an exchange of information and now there was peace and everybody started talking about their dicks. I learned how to fuck a watermelon from a Latin gang member. <laughs> that's, that's true, thank you for that, that clap, that very, very tepid. You were like, I'm about to clap. No, that's not something to clap about. It's a child fucking a melon. <laughs> it was wild, man, the fight subsided. I think part of it was the transfer of information. Part of it just everybody's jerking off after school, you know? And everything was, was, was peaceful. But then I didn't really have the value, right? And so then I kind of felt out of place. Also, I wanted to belong so much that I was using all my lunch money to buy dick pills. And do you know what happens to a growing boy with a tummy full of dick pills? I stopped growing, dog. You know, I just, I, I started those during my formidable years. I had a belly full of dick pills and all I wanted was my pizza rolls. That's all I wanted, but Sal knew. Sal knew that there was social pressure to buy the dick pills because if you wanted in on the masturbation conversation, you better be buying those dick pills. Nobody would let you in because that's weird if you're gonna be talking about your dick without dick pills, right? And so everybody would, if you admitted that your dick stopped getting bigger and you admitted that you stopped buying dick pills, they'd all start making fun of you. And Sal knew that. And he'd be like, hey, Steven, how about you buy those dick pills? And I was like, I wanted pizza, dog. <laughs> but then one day it came crashing down. Principal got on the intercom and he made a strict, no old Guatemalan men allowed to sell penis enhancement pills in the parking lot rule. And typically, I don't like it when big government gets involved with small business. <laughs> but I was cool with that, right? Because I got my pizza rolls back. And that was huge to me. But then the warring started happening. The fighting started happening. Everything went back to the status quo. But I got my pizza rolls, so I was chill. Then about three weeks goes by. I go to the grocery store, and I run into Sal. And he gives me the whole pitch. He's like, hey, Steven, how about you buy these dick pills? And I put my foot down. I was like, no, Sal. We're better off without you. He's like, oh, so you figured it out. He's like, figured what out, Sal? He's like, I've been selling all you motherfuckers multivitamins this whole time. <laughs> and that hit me in waves. It's like, first off, Sal, I thought we were friends, dog. Like, you got a kinship with your drug dealer. Secondly, why'd you make me jerk off? <laughs> you know, that was weird. 
That was I don't know what you what type of sick fantasy you got that you made a bunch of kids jerk off at 7:15 every morning. <laughs> but then he like spun it around while I was still cloudy headed, and he was like, "Okay, how about you sell dick pills for me?" And I did. <laughs> In retrospect, I don't know why I didn't just go to a vitamin world, right? Like, I knew the source. <laughs> but I wanted to be part of something bigger than me. He had this Pablo Escobar charisma about him. I was like, let's do it, Poppy. And so at the peak, I was selling a freezer bag full of dick pills a day. I was big man on campus. I was back. I got my value add. I'm walking around campus. I'm selling dick pills. At, I'm refereeing fights. I'm selling the dick pills at fights. I was big man. I was the most popular I'd ever been to this day. I'm getting invited to parties I had no business being at. We're crushing up B12 on the sink, just snorting it off. I was big timing. Then one day I came home. My mother was sitting at the coffee table. She's crying. She's got a big freezer bag full of dick pills in front of her. She's just crying. She's like, Steven, I was just, I was just cleaning inside of your room. She's like, first off, nobody cleans inside of drawers. You were being fucking rude. So I was just cleaning inside of your, your room and I found all these drugs. Like, Ma, they're not drugs. I swear to God, they're not drugs. I, they're multivitamins. Nobody would hide multivitamins. Explain to me right now. I was like, please don't make me explain. She's like, explain to me right now. My son's a drug dealer. I'm going to send you away. I was like, Mom. She's like, okay, I'll explain. And I told her the whole story and then she just stopped crying and she looked me in the eyes and she just said, I fucking wish they were drugs. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Stephen Campbell. Thank you very much. Stephen Campbell, everyone. <laughs> oh, my God. Sometimes I hear a story like that, and I think, gosh, maybe it's not as easy to be a straight guy as I grew up thinking. And also backstage, I was thinking, thank God for my pharmaceutical dick pills. Hey, Evan. Have you guys put together the numbers for Friday's presentation yet? What presentation? Phallocyte. Phallocyte presentation. Phallocyte. Oh, is that the bigger dick thing? Pill? Natural male enhancement. Yeah. Right. Does that thing even work? It totally works. I heard it turns your junk it, green. It still works. Dick pills. Dick pills. Dick pills. Dick pills. Dick pills. Dick pills, 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 dick pills. She's got a big freezer bag full of dick pills. So my first true taste of freedom was when I joined my university on the south coast of England on the beaches of Bournemouth back in 2012. 
After four years of university, I moved back to London and being from London, I was ready to immerse myself in the city in my new adult free way. Unfortunately, London is a really expensive place to live. And so all of this freedom and this new adult life that I had been harnessing and loving for the last four years suddenly came crashing down around my ears when I had to move back in with my parents. It was a life of rules and all of these restrictions that I just hadn't had to deal with for four years. And so that was really hard. And in that moment, I was desperate, beyond desperate, to find somewhere that I could afford. But it was just looking really, really bleak and difficult. A friend of mine called me up. She said, OK, I found a place. We can afford it, but I'm going to tell you, it's not in the best neighbourhood. And I said, is it cute? Is it small? Can we afford it? Let's go check it out. So my friend Ali met me in Bruce Grove in Tottenham in London. Now for anyone from the UK and from London especially, they will know that this is a particularly dodgy area to live. It is known by the Met Police as one of the most volatile crime districts in that part of London and possibly across the whole of London itself. But basically, we didn't care. We were like, there's a cute little shop below. It's like a bodega below the apartment. There's a nice Turkish man with really kind eyes. Surely it can't be as bad as they say. We went upstairs, we checked out the apartment. It had three bedrooms, one for me, one for Ali, one for our other housemate, our future housemate, Eleanor. And it was cosy, it was clean, it didn't have rats, it didn't have cockroaches. It was fine, it was fit for purpose. And we were like, let's make this our home. So we got the contract, we signed it off, and we were ready to live our free adult existence like we had been doing at university. The flat was a bit of a blank canvas, so we were able to just make it our own. We just made it this lovely oasis and haven in this big city that was very gray and dark on the outside. But once you stepped through our door, you were hit by the sense of peace that, you know, the smell of incense and the cozy fabrics, everything was wonderful. And so was our relationship. You know, all of us were starting out in our careers. We were in the lowest positions that you can be on your career ladder, your interns, your the people getting the coffee, you're doing the grunt work, and no one respects you. People regularly shouted at me or asked me to do ridiculous things like trimming the carpet around their feet as they sat at their desks and worked. It was ridiculous. And so you can imagine how needing a place like that was so much more important at that stage in all of our lives. So when we'd come home and walk through that door and take off our blazers and our work outfits and put on our hippie pants and just get cozy, it was so soul soothing and just what we needed. But it was tricky because like I said, this was not a nice neighborhood. And for the first couple of months, we thought, what was everyone on about? This is it's fine, it's totally okay. Yeah, sure, you have drunk people shouting at night, you have people getting into fights, and yes, there are people with drug addictions who are hanging around on street corners, but none of that really affects us until this one particular night. We had been staying up late, having chats, having a few drinks, and I went to bed and I was sitting in my bedroom, on my bed, watching a sort of action movie. It was very sort of car crashes and violence and hayas and screams and all sorts of loud, violent noises. And 
as I was listening to it, I heard a similar noise that would fit in with the context of this movie, but it was not coming from my laptop. It was coming from somewhere outside of my window. And so I paused the movie and started to listen. And this noise was, I realized a scream. It was someone screaming and it wasn't the usual kind of scream that you hear when people are drunk or people are just having a fight. It was, I've never understood the term blood curdling, but it was in that moment, as I understand, completely blood curdling. It was a, a scream of pure terror and fear. I instinctively jumped up and opened my curtain to look outside. And three to four meters across the road were three men, one of which was being pulled from left to right and punched in the stomach and punched in the head by the two men that were with him. And this man was screaming and screaming and holding his hands and arms up to cover his head and tried to protect his body from these two men who were just raining down punches upon punches on him. And he was in his late teens, early 20s. He was dressed really well. He had a really nice cashmere-looking jumper and well-kept hair. And the two men, they were at least 10 to 20 years older. One of them had a grey tracksuit on and was probably in his 40s. The other man that was with him was also roughly the same age and he had spiky black hair. And so these two men were just attacking this poor guy. And they didn't look related and they weren't trying to steal something from him. So it wasn't clear what the fight was about and it was a very unfair fight because he was just trying to defend himself from these punches whilst they were just going harder and harder. So without even thinking twice, I lifted my window up. It was one that slides from the bottom up and started screaming at them. I was like, what are you doing? Leave that guy alone. What the fuck do you think you're doing? Get away from him. And they paused for like a second. They looked up at me and they obviously thought, you're not going to stop us. And they kicked the man and he fell to the floor and at that point they started really kicking him in the stomach and he was rolling side to side trying to avoid their kicks and punches but nothing was stopping them and so I started screaming louder and I had this light bulb moment I don't know how it came to me but I think that someone had mentioned it maybe that same week that if something dodgy something not right is happening get out your phone and start to film it so I pulled my phone out of my bag or like the side of my bed and said, carry on, keep going, I'm filming you and the police are on their way. But because of my panic and because of the fast reaction of the situation, the police were not on their way and I actually wasn't filming them. I was just grabbing my phone to try and tell them something to make it stop, you know? And that actually did make them pause. So at that point, they started to drag the man down an alleyway. And just to give you guys a bit of context, this is a street that is well lit. It has buses going up and down it. It's a main road. It's not a quiet little side street in the in a nook of London. It's a main road where there are people at all hours of the day, taxi drivers, drunk people. It's not dark and it's not quiet. So they realized, okay, there's attention on us and the police are coming. So they started to pull this guy by his trousers and actually kind of looked like they were pulling his trousers down a little bit as they did it down this alleyway. Meanwhile, he's still screaming and crying out for help. And of course, I don't think he realized I was there because he was in shock and in this moment. And 
So at that point, I started to whistle. I took my fingers, I put them in my mouth, and I started to whistle like a car alarm. As loud as I could, because I suddenly thought, well, someone might think a car's being broken into, and maybe it's their car, and then they might, you know, start helping, and this might attract attention. And somehow, in the confusion of that moment, the two guys let go of this boy, and he was able to scramble up and start to run away. And a combination of me screaming, me filming, making this loud whistling noise, and this guy being able to have this moment away, the guys who were attacking him obviously paused because they were not sure about what their next move would be. And so they stood there watching as this young guy scrambled up and ran away. I watched him and as he ran, he started to wave his arms and scream, help, help, because he clearly hadn't seen that I was trying to help. And there was nothing I could really do to tell him that I was there and was trying to support him and help him out of that situation. And a bus was coming along the main road. This was a double-decker red London bus, and this boy ran directly into its path, screaming and waving, stop, please stop. And I thought, oh my God, I've helped to save him from this attack, but what if now he gets run over? Because, you know, he's blind to what's going on. And so he runs into the path of this bus, and the bus driver, who bless him, is just a normal bus driver and thinks this kid must be crazy, just swerves him and carries on driving and thank God the boy was okay. And I watched him as he ran down the rest of this road and round the corner and away. I turned around and the two men were still standing there staring at me. And they turned around really slowly and they walked away. But that calm calculated anger was really clear. The next morning, I almost couldn't remember what had happened. It was like a terrible dream. And I went down to the corner shop to pick up my milk and bread. And that's when I bumped into my neighbor, a woman who lives along the road in the next door apartment to me with a window on the same level. And she said, hey, well done for last night. And I was probably half asleep trying to get some milk for my tea. And I was just like, what? And she said, you know, like that kid, you basically saved his life. And I was like, what? Like, sorry. So you saw that whole thing. Where were you? What were you doing? And that realization was something that I reflected on myself because I think at first I thought anyone would do it. You know, anyone would hear something so primal and horrific in that scream and they would do what I did and open the window and start trying to help. But the woman who lived next door to me must have heard the same thing, seen the same thing and did nothing, didn't lift a finger, didn't even twitch her curtain to look out and try and help. Because if two of us were doing it, I would have heard her. If two of us were doing it, they might have stopped sooner and he might have got less beat. But that's not what happened. And so I understood something about myself then in the type of person that I am. But I think when you're from a city, you're told that it's dangerous to get involved. And in fact, when I told my parents about this, they were mad at me. They were like, why would you do that? That's so stupid. Those men can put a ladder up to your window. They can climb in at any moment. They can break your window. They can rape you. Like, you have put yourself at risk. 
you've put your neck on the line for someone you don't even know. And I won't lie, I had nightmares for a while afterwards. And I did think these men could come and break into my window, but I got locks, I got alarms, and I did something to protect myself. Now, what happened after that was, it was like the violence and the crime that we'd been told about had finally reached our doorstep. And not only that, but it started to somehow seep through the walls and into our home. It was like a can of worms had been opened and suddenly there was so much violence. There was a night where we came home and seven police officers ran at me and my housemates and said, do you know Alexandra, where is she? And they were looking for a woman who lived above us who was a sex worker and she had been murdered and they found her upstairs above our apartment. And then there was a car chase that stopped right outside of our window with men in masks and police cars blocking the road. It was like something out of a, a movie. But instead of all those things being thrilling like they are in TV or movie, they were stressful and scary and tense. And that stress and that tension was something that we as housemates weren't able to deal with that oasis that we had created in those first couple of months started to slip away and the arguments between us got more and more frequent, even to the point where those lovely gestures that we were making in the beginning, do you want to eat something for dinner? What can I cook for you? Suddenly, negativity was seeping into everything that we were going through. That was the end for us. And in that place, we decided that we needed to move on. Ali went to Bali and found her peace and her serenity through yoga and adventure. Eleanor went to a new place, a very cool creative artist kind of commune in London and that's actually where her career as an art photographer really started to flourish. And for me, I understood that I'm not a standby. I care about injustice and being someone of Jewish heritage, I decided and it was a conversation that was happening a lot at the time in London about the, the conflict in Israel and with Gaza. And so I decided that I wanted to come and bring my voice and be a voice of pro-peace in that environment. And so I moved to Israel and I worked with organizations working in the Gaza Strip with women who had lost children on both sides of the conflict because it doesn't matter whose side you're on. War is war and death is death. And so I worked for a couple of years doing that. And now I've moved on from that, but when I look back at that time, it felt dark and it felt tense and it felt stressful. But now I know that actually it was a really important part of my life to understand who I am as a person and shape my future in ways that I would never have known if that hadn't have happened. And there's a quote by Rumi that feels really relevant whenever I think of it, which is, darkness is your candle, your boundaries are the quest.
This is Risk. This is Wolf Alice behind me now. And we just heard from Lilibet Fleur, whose story was edited by Hope Brush. And we call that one Like a Terrible Dream. And before that, a little interstitial all about the class of pharmaceuticals we all know and love as Dick Pills by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Folks, don't forget that patreon.com slash risk is a treasure trove of bonus stories. There's 162 more stories to be found over there on Patreon. We sometimes hear from people who say, oh, you know, my favorite story is the one about yada yada. And uh, I can't find it. What? Where is it? And we remind them, oh, yeah, it's over there amongst the bonus stories. And then there's the check-ins. There are my audio journals over there. There's conversations between storytellers and staff members. There's so much. There's, let's see, Jeff estimates there is roughly 98 and a half hours of content that you can find over there in our members only Patreon that you can find at patreon.com slash risk. And there's other perks of joining, like getting the ad-free versions of the episodes before anyone else gets the standard ones. And of course, it is crucial to us to have that support from folks who appreciate what we do to keep risk running. We are so grateful for it. And again, that is all at patreon.com slash risk. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, that about wraps it up. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Lilibet. 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 We're going to hear from Pills. Dick 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 pills.